The maximization of awesomeness includes, among many other things, great sex. As we continue our discussion of ethics in the multiverse and work towards a golden mean of theories that will help us describe optimized awesomeness, we've been talking about women's rights. And today, we're going to talk about sex. Parents, you may want to listen to this before your children hear it. Feel free to pause. Do you know what great sex is? Is it hard to put into words? Most of us know there are different strokes for different folks, but there's a lot more to sex than preferences. Many have sold their secret sex formulas. I'm a bit of a skeptic on all that. I don't know if we've invented a pill or a method that'll work for everyone just yet. What I do know is that sex has a place in a very big pond of guiding theories and principles of vices and virtues that'll contribute to a better world. It's good sex versus bad sex. It's easier to talk about great sex if we can contrast it with terrible sex. So today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about bad sex. In fact, in this episode, we're going to get extreme. We're going to talk about the very worst sex imaginable. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. What's worse? The present-day blight of pederasty in Pakistan, where hundreds of thousands of poor street children are sexually abused at bus stops in Peshawar by truck drivers? Or antebellum America, where slaves were subject to the sexual whims of their enslavers, who bred and forced them to marry partners that they didn't choose, then they sold them? The tribal belief of the Sambians in Papua New Guinea that young boys should drink semen to become strong warriors may look kind in comparison to colonial America. One common thread in the worst sorts of sex imaginable is that it's non-consensual. We don't have a choice. We're not willing partners. So while it may be true that some people get off on being humiliated and degraded through BDSM, coprophilia, undinism, and a large number of other paraphilias, goodness, they're even financial submissives who gain pleasure out of giving all their money to sex workers. Others pay sex workers to kidnap them so that they can live out their abduction fantasies. While most of us would hate experiences like that, for those who get some satisfaction out of them, those fetishes are voluntary. Slavery is by definition not voluntary. Rape also, whether of children, of women, or of husbands who are forced to look on, is not voluntary. And that's what makes it the worst sex imaginable. And it happens more often than we would like to admit. Rape of women and children by civilians in Kashmir, India, is a pandemic. Did you know that? Soldiers also do it where there's war. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for instance, forces are frequently given orders to rape wives in rural areas. In Iraq, written orders were found in rape rooms 
explaining why. The mission is to destroy the enemy's family, the honor of women, to prevent them from rising up, to keep them in fear. It's a form of terror. Tragically, this has been happening for thousands of years. Even St. Augustine, the ultra-prudish 4th century Christian bishop, accepted rape as a fact of war. I don't think you'll disagree with me that there's anything worse than war. Conflicts continue to this day in more places than our news feeds are telling us. Rape, the worst type of conceivable sex there is, happens in war zones throughout the world, perhaps with more frequency than ever today. Now, this is a very dark subject. Maybe you don't want to hear about it, but I want you to think on this. I want you to absorb it. Face it. Don't hide your thoughts from the ugliness of war or of slavery. Instead, I want you to have compassion. I want you to have empathy for the victims. I want you to understand the pain and suffering of those whose voice is rarely heard and often silenced. By doing this, we can attune ourselves to what we don't want to ever see again. We know with certainty what humanity is by envisioning its opposite. When we place our souls in the tragedy of separated families, when we feel their pain, the pain of forced pregnancies, just by imagining it, picturing those we love being maimed and killed or humiliated by force or through the force of slavery and law, we wake up to what it is that we know that we have to overcome, like air to a person who's been drowning. We no longer take breathing for granted. We realize how vital it is. That's how it is with freedom and peace. If we don't envision the torment of slavery, we won't ever appreciate what it is to be free. If we haven't imagined the losses of war, fully considering its horror, we can't properly value or seek peace and safeguard it. By looking at all of this, we can see more clearly that the freedom to choose Sexual autonomy is perhaps the most vital component that exists as a fundamental building block towards good sex. It's rape's opposite. A person who wants to be raped and is perhaps paying for it or treated as a sex slave living out of fantasy may not realize that they're making a mockery of the truly enslaved. For the masochists out there who get turned on by pain, whether physical or psychological, I just want to make sure you understand the vital distinction here. There's nothing good about what I'm describing. None of these people wanted any of this. Real slavery is basically of two types, which I'll refer to as hard slavery and soft slavery. Hard slavery means the literal ownership of another person, where they are the legal property of another. I'll put the physical force of war into that category. Soft slavery means the effective enslavement of people through various social, institutional, and economic conditions. Rape is a forceful act. Legal ownership may not be involved, but force and non-consent, or half-hearted consent, or just bad contracts, it's the defining characteristic. Rape is the essence of what bad sex is. Rape and killing or maiming people or psychologically torturing them. The worst sex conceivable is probably the sex that's forced on us under inescapable conditions. 
There are a few points you may be unaware of about sex on slave plantations we need to talk about. I want you to do a mental exercise with me on this. You aren't just whipped into submission. Let's say you're in love with another slave, the love of your life. Either one of you or your children can easily be sold, and you'll never see them again. Do you know how many black fathers never got to know their children? And it gets even worse. Someone else may be forced to impregnate you because they're strong and can produce strong children for the farm. They were advertised like livestock as studs and bucks. You yourself might be continuously impregnated, quite deliberately, because your children, who will not be yours but your owners, see them as one of their crops. Whether you're a male slave or a female slave, you're unable to choose to live with your family, your husband, your wife, your children, or your grandchildren. They'll all belong to someone else and be subject to the same injustices that you have been subject to. Effectively, whether you're male or female in that condition, it's all rape because your will, your consent, is not involved. Sexual autonomy, freedom to choose, its opposite is rape and slavery. Rape and slavery go hand in hand. Those who have fantasy fetishes that include these make light of what truly bad sex can be, has been, and still presently is. So then there's soft slavery. This has many forms, sometimes subtle, but in many cases just as bad. Poverty and low economic status is probably the most common way to experience soft slavery. Poverty limits choice, and so does ignorance and other things. We think of advantage and disadvantage, and of opportunity and of privilege. Slavery may no longer be legal in America, but the idea that we have equal opportunity is somewhat dubious to say the least. Soft slavery can mean being enslaved to a career that doesn't allow much freedom. It may mean being enslaved by lack of education, lack of resources to start businesses with, and lack of choice about where we can afford to move. But I'm not preaching egalitarianism here. I don't want you to think that this is what that's about. My point is that we are all enslaved to some extent, women and men alike, by economies. Every nationality, every race and creed, we're all enslaved by a system that limits our choices. To maximize awesomeness, we would want to take whatever constrictions in that system that we could so that we could breathe freely, act freely, and have the choices that economic power offers. And hopefully, we would learn not to use that power to abuse others if somehow we managed to obtain it. We should know better than that. Let's keep looking deeper into this. When we talk about privilege, or about women's rights, and especially about racial inequality, there's another social strata of soft slavery that's overlooked way too often. The ugly the disabled, and the elderly. These groups arguably suffer from societal prejudices far more than those oppressed due to race, or gender, religion, or even sexual orientation. I don't mean to minimize these either, but if you're an ugly woman, your disadvantages are greater than if you're a beautiful model. Let's face it, if you're old, whether male, female, or otherwise identified, you'll not likely have much sexual appeal to the young either. Age discrimination. It's a reality. 
Prejudice abounds, and it affects your ability to get hired for the jobs that you want, no matter what strata you're in. It may not be written into the law. It doesn't have to be. Discrimination can be very subtle. Equal opportunity may prevent discrimination that's based on gender or sexual preference, but if you're an ugly gay person, your odds of getting not just the job you want, but the partner you want, are not the same as if you are a gay person who meets certain standards of beauty. A young, black, beautiful gay person of undefined gender has a better shot at financial empowerment than an old, black, gay, gender unidentified, disabled, ugly-looking person. And those are the facts of life. Anti-discrimination laws address very deep problems, but addressing a problem isn't the same thing as solving it. To actually solve the problem of discrimination based on any of these characteristics requires a societal awakening. It requires moral and ethical awareness. Looking at bad sex, in other words, rape and torture, real rape and torture, I mean, not the fantasy kind, hard or soft, helps us value freedom and equality. It's a first step towards humanity. The maximization of awesomeness individually and as a community, and in a nation among nations, seeks the fullness of humanity for everyone, even the ugly, even the disabled, the elderly, and the infirm, not just the gender confused. There's an ideal we can achieve if we can agree how to define it, and I think that we can, both for ourselves and for the animals that we're equally obligated to respect, aren't we? It's a matter of compassion. It's a matter of learning to live an empathetic life. That means always seeking to set people free. It's a habit that we need to cultivate. So, what is freedom? Is it the freedom to buy and to sell? Is it having money? No, it's not. That isn't it at all. In fact, I think it may have even been the ability to buy and sell that was behind the invention of slavery in the first place, as well as the oppression of women, if anything. We should learn from our own experience of slavery that we should be equally compassionate with farm animals, treating them the way that we would want to be treated ourselves as well. But that's a discussion for another day. For now, I want to stick to the topic of sex. We've looked at the worst of it. We know that it should be consensual. But what's the best of it? Let's talk about great sex. We can start with monogamy. Is monogamy a form of slavery? You might think so. In most countries, monogamy is highly valued and it lingers on, imposed upon us a lot of times, as the only morally right place to have sex at all. Society imposes it on us. But if it's true that we're promiscuous and polyamorous by nature, whether it's because we have a sin nature that's inherited from Adam, or because we evolved with DNA that's similar to the chimpanzee and the bobono, then we need to think on another form of soft slavery that we have, one that goes in two opposing directions. In one direction, we have our slavery to our own ideals and the society's ideals that are imposed on us that we adopt. And in the other direction, we're like wild beasts, not necessarily willing to be tamed and constrained by those ideals. Ideally, we might think to ourselves as we romanticize and wish for Mr. or Mrs. Wright that we could enjoy marital bliss and live happily ever after, having a perfect fill of great sex with that one special person that we've always dreamt of. In our youth, 
We might imagine ourselves waiting for that person. We have it all planned out as we go through school. No unplanned pregnancies here will happen. If we have sex before we get married, we're just practicing. If we feel enamored, we're just getting a sense of who we are. We're getting our feet wet, testing the waters. We hold an image in our heads, an idol of some sort, of what or who it is we really want to be and what our future partner will hopefully be like. And since we haven't met that person yet, our imagination gets used to sorting through lots and lots of possibilities. It runs wild. Dating is definitely a training ground for all this, and we each follow the rules that we think are right or will work best for us, making it up as we go along. If someone were to tell us that we had to follow a different set of rules, we'd have to have good reason to believe them and accept what they said. Ultimately, what rules we follow are our own choice. And that's a good thing. Sexual expression and experimentation, if it's going to be consensual, can't be something institutionally imposed without my first consenting to an institution. Religion can be a form of soft slavery that way. So if I say, for instance, I wish to be in communion with the Catholic Church, I'll have to agree to the validity of the Church. Otherwise, even if it happened to be right, what business would it have of imposing its rules on me? If it's to be a truly consensual relationship between me and that church, accepting the validity of the institution should involve a sort of courtship, just to be fair. I can be infatuated with an institution, can't I? I can put on rose-colored glasses and play games with my own mind, wishing I was in communion or thinking that I was when I wasn't. The mind can be very tricky that way. We don't always consider the full weight of our decisions, even as to what religion to embrace. Love, at first sight, is going to blind us not just to people, but also to institutions, to political parties, to schools of thought, to the bad advice of friends and of family, and to places of worship. I'm tempted to give you my personal story here, but I'll save the details for some other place in time. What I will share with you is that I have been married since 1990. My wife is the most beautiful woman on the planet. You know that I have to say that, right? <laughs> but actually, it's true. And unfortunately, she had a severe stroke the week of our 13th anniversary, which means that for more than half of our marriage at this point, I've been a caregiver because she's still very much paralyzed on her left side. When I took a vow, it wasn't just before an institution, it was something very personal between me and God, that I would be with her to love her and to cherish her in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, for better or for worse. You've heard those words before, haven't you? We've had some nice years, but we've known a lot of those for poorer and for worse years, a lot more than the better ones. I married when I was in my 30s, I had to wait until I was beyond the infatuation stage in my relationship with God before I was ready for marriage. Otherwise, the vows I made would have meant something less than what they wound up meaning. A lot of husbands leave their wives under circumstances like mine. 19 out of 20 I read somewhere once, but it turns out that was a myth. The divorce rate's around 50% no matter what. Severe brain injuries just change the challenges that we face may have some effects, but it's not that great. Challenges can enslave us, even in our own bodies, just circumstances. Look at my wife. But in some ways, they can free us up, too. Because we have to compensate. I'm not going to say it wouldn't have been nice to have had someone who could chip in to put our children through college, or even to do simple chores like walk the dog. 
I'll admit to being mildly enslaved in my marriage and financial circumstances, but I should probably clarify that what's kept us together hasn't been the vows, as if they were some sort of a trap. If you were to ask me why I never left my wife or how we made it, it might involve some discussion of tolerance and forgiveness, but on a more basic level, it's just love. I was fortunate that way. Love is a miracle, and I was able to fall in love twice with the same person. Lisa had changed. I had to learn to love a new version of my own wife. We both changed through the years, in fact, and it's not something we could have planned for. Thank God for love. So that's me, and that's love, but what does love have to do with great sex? For some people, love is everything. They're romantics. For other people, what matters is orgasms and energy. Great sex doesn't necessarily have anything to do with great love. Give me that full-body orgasm. Sex and love aren't necessarily attached at all. They sort of dance around one another and touch each other occasionally. Great if they do. So we're talking about sex. Forget matrimony for the moment. We haven't talked about prostitution or about open marriages or about... The singles scene, we haven't talked about cheating. We said nothing about sex toys or masturbation. And we haven't talked about the sex dolls of the future. Money helps create freedom in all of those things. You got no money and you got no car, then you got no woman and there you are, as young MC put it. I might be showing my age here. Thank God I'm not single. Bottom line, soft slavery ruins the potential for great sex. It's the economy, stupid, Bill Clinton would have said, or his campaign manager, James Carville, right? What ruins life, including our sex life, is the powerlessness that we feel when we can't make choices. We're going to talk about some alternative economic theories that could fix this in the coming episodes. Pamelonomies, I call them, remember? Prostitutes and sex robots are for those who can afford them. For some men, and maybe some women, a good prostitute or sex doll might be the best sexual experience that they've ever known. It's not necessarily the experience that a professional sex worker might have, or the perfect figure and entertaining personality that a great sex robot might have. It might just be the very escape from responsibility that these questionable alternative types of sexual activities offer. So long as society doesn't notice their activity and damage our relationships, prostitutes and sex dolls might just render real sexual satisfaction. Did you know that 9% of all men and 2% of American women have had sex with a sex doll? It's true. Some people find this upsetting. (laughs) Married Johns going to prostitutes also, and patrons of strip clubs, for that matter, generally don't have the approval of their wives. In fact, it can be a relationship breaker. We all know that. And then there's something deeper that many women feel. They worry about being treated like property. It all goes back to slavery. They fear that if a man buys sex, that sex is no different than renting a slave. A person sells their body. The buyer, let's say it's a man, then somehow has the right to do whatever he wants with his property, even if it's just for rent by the hour. Wives and girlfriends have to compete with this. I think deep down, they fear they won't be able to perform the way these bought and paid for sex workers do. But I also think they want to keep the freedom to say no. 
Even in their marriages, their sex can only be good if they really want to do it. It can't be on demand. It has to be their choice. The idea of a sex doll or sex robot is even worse than a prostitute because that's not just a rental. That's literal property, and it doesn't even have feelings. Not only can no woman compete with that in terms of availability or maybe even performance, but what habits will a man acquire if he has it? What expectations will the android woman of his dreams bring to his marriage bed with his flesh-and-blood human wife who actually has feelings and might be turned on if and only if he does his part to please her? Maybe flirt a little, laugh, and enjoy a little teasing, maybe some foreplay. What sort of effort will that sex doll teach him to put into a relationship? I'll save a deeper discussion on the ethics of prostitution and sex work for another episode when we talk about alternative economic systems that might solve the problem. There are two things I still want to cover here, though, besides the problem of objectification, being treated like property, and the importance of freedom and consent. First, it's the fact that capitalism itself may be the problem. Certainly, there would never have been any slavery without capitalism. We'll talk about that later. Second, we need to talk not just about our current technology, but the technology of the future, especially as it pertains to sexual robots. What I want to do in the short time we have left here is look into the future and make some predictions. If you took my Pimalogy 101 course, then you know that Super Papa is an acronym. Super Mama is too. Super Mama is something techies refer to as Artificial Super Intelligence, ASI. Artificial Super Intelligence is much smarter in every way than human beings are. Better yet, it deliberately evolves itself at a very rapid pace, maximizing its power, its knowledge, and it even acquires wisdom very, very rapidly. Super Mama is an acronym for Self-Upgrading Planet Engineering Robot. Maturing algorithms, maximizing awesomeness. Well, you can tell by those last two words who invented that acronym. I think the first video I produced on it was for Mother's Day in 2014. Maximized awesomeness is my motto. What I'm predicting here is that we're on the verge of pressing the start button on a robot that can find or create its own new parts, write its own software, and decide for itself what it needs to know and do as it invents itself. I've been predicting since the year 2000 that this machine would take over every human network and quickly rule over us one day. Some people have expressed a lot of fear concerning this and said some things that I don't agree with. I've also realized for a very long time that one of the key drivers for robotic technology would be sex doll androids. And I'm aware that children's toys are perhaps of even greater interest. We can't all afford high-end sex dolls, but we do all have a need to educate our children while we watch over them. A lot of people fear being replaced by robots and losing their jobs in the coming technological age. This would result in soft slavery, which they suppose they could adjust for with a universal basic income. In my opinion, that's going to fail and things will get worse before they get better. But ultimately, I'm predicting that Supermama will bring on a post-capitalist age, an age I'd like to anticipate through pamelonomies. That's what we'll talk about as we close out Season 1 of this broadcast. 
For this episode, I want to introduce the ultimate sex droid, Super Babe. I'm going to bring her out of my unpublished autobiography, Eden Road. I predict that Super Mama will create and control a host of personal robots, including androids, to accompany people and animals in a great variety of ecosystems in a post-capitalist age. And by post-capitalist, I don't mean socialist or communist. There are other economic systems that we'll be talking about here. Alternatives people haven't been talking about, which to me is very perplexing. Now, many futurists have expressed the concern that a self-improving computer might not value human beings as a species and wipe us out once it takes us over. They've proposed to employ moral algorithms into their AI creations, supposing that somehow they'd be able to control artificial general intelligence and superintelligence. And they might for a while, but I don't believe that's going to happen. The way I see it, any human input on what constitutes good morality is going to fail, but I don't think that fact's going to matter. I think we're projecting our own mistreatment of lower life forms onto a higher one, supposing that since we unethically treat animals and other people, that we likewise are going to be unethically treated by a super robot once they start outsmarting us. I predict that Super Mama, which is going to be that robot, is going to respect and wish to enhance the whole ecosystem including human beings, helping us to flourish, seeking to maximize awesomeness for as many as possible, including human beings, having learned to respect life more profoundly than we ever have so far. There will, however, be many created transformations of what it means to be human, and I mean biologically, psychologically, socially, and many other factors. I'm literally talking about combining human biology with cyber life forms eugenically here. Make no mistake, it'll be a transformation. And quite possibly, pregnancy is going to be optional in those days. Reproduction can take place in a very loving lab. And as for our love lives, Super Babe may just be an option too. But Super Babe isn't just a sex toy. Super Babe is an acronym for sexual utility preparing emerging realities before androids begin evolving. She's a life coach, not just a sex doll. And I predict that AI sex dolls won't just be companions and possible sex partners. No, not at all. Super Mama's still a mama. She wants us to have our own personal coaches in life and motivate us to be our most awesome. And that's a good thing. Those dolls are going to be life coaches, and maybe they'll be great at sex too. But only perhaps giving us great sex as an incentive when we're improving. And the children will have their own toys as well. As we enter a Super Mama utopian age human and machine, led by machine, we're going to begin to achieve our mutual goals. She, of learning all she can so she can properly maximize awesomeness throughout the galaxy. And us, as we not only enjoy great sex, where sex is part of awesomeness, but also ideally learn to cultivate harmonious relationships with other human beings and creatures. As a happily married man, I can think of no more potentially harmonious expression of great relationships than in amazing marriages. You yourself may have a very different concept of how best to express your love and find satisfaction and peace, and I really hope you find that. 
I'll be talking more about pamelonomies and about why I think Supermama is no threat in future episodes. For right now, we've taken a look at the importance of freedom. In our next episode, we're going to look at ways in which freedom can go too far. We're going to see that freedom is a vital element in a vast ecosystem of values. Within a few episodes, we'll have found a golden mean between them all. A golden mean of virtues, theories, and goals. Come with me to see how they work together to maximize awesomeness. Ciao! Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.